0: For the month of september and october we're going to be in a series titled a church called good it's about rejecting the toxic culture of celebrity and consumerism that sometimes engulfs the modern church and instead embracing and nurturing a culture of goodness appreciate you listening thank you deborah for that kids yeah you can head to to children's ministry and uh, thank you, Deborah, for leading us in our time of communion. Thank you to Deborah and Glenn for preparing our communion. They've they've stepped up and taken that role for us on Sundays. Uh, so they're now preparing communion every Sunday, which right now is pouring cups into a bucket. But we we will go back to a traditional means of communion. This morning I particularly missed it. Um, it just once the numbers subside, we will kind of go back to a more traditional way of taking communion and we're probably going to do the same thing with the offering too like uh, eventually we'll start passing the trays again because it just makes it easier to give and and it makes it uh easier to get the connect cards which are so important to us so uh if you didn't fill out a connect card yet please fill that out and just drop it in those boxes as you leave uh today Before we get into the message, I need to tell you just a little bit about our elder rotation that's coming up this month. So about three years ago, we uh, redid our leadership structure uh, here at Murray Hills, and our elders now serve terms. And we did that primarily because it was getting really hard to have people step into that role, because elder has traditionally been like a lifetime appointment. And there were people like, I don't know that I'm ready for the lifetime appointment. And so they now serve uh, terms. So we have seven elders uh, on our leadership team, they serve a three-year term. And after the end of that three-year term, they can renew for an additional three-year term. After the end of that time period, they're asked to take a one-year uh, sabbatical or break and at least to, to take some time off. And then they could step back on if they wanted to at that particular time. But, um, so that means every September, we're going to have elders rolling on and rolling off uh, the leadership and in this year, in this September, uh, Scott Arnold and Tom McQuiston are the two guys whose terms end. Uh, Scott has decided that he would like to do another three-year term. He's online with us right now, so he's going to do another three-year term and Tom has decided that this is probably a good time for him to step away from serving in that role. Uh, Tom's our longest serving elder. Uh, He's been, I think you're seven years in or eight years in or something, he was serving before we Uh, actually began this process of terms. And so I'm telling you this morning, he's sitting there in the blue shirt, I want you to thank Tom for his years of service to this church as an elder very humble servant, and I've been honored to serve alongside him in this role. He has served this church well, and I hope after this service is over, you'll get a chance to go over and thank Tom personally for his service as an elder to this church. The other reason I'm telling you this is because we are now going to take uh, names or nominations for new elders, and we're only adding one at this time because we only, we keep it at seven, but, uh, we're looking for next Sunday, we're looking for names of people that you feel would be good to add to our leadership team. So the way that process is going to work is I'll ask for it on the connect cards. You'll give me a list of of names or nominees. It may be one, it may be 10, however you feel. Um, And then we'll take those names to our current leadership and choose from from that uh, list who will go forward into the next step of the process. And then once there's agreement that on the the prospective elder and the current elders that, yes, we we can work together, we're on the same page, those kinds of things, we'll bring it back to the church for affirmation. So uh, our elders, just to, for clarification, the elders are the sole governance body of this church. We don't belong to a diocese or a synod or a convention or anything like that. We're a non-denominational, independent, autonomous church, so our elders provide leadership for this church. They... Um, watch over church finances, they watch over church doctrine, they watch over the church's senior pastor, which is me, so they hold me accountable. I explain in one-on-one every time they hired me, they have the authority to fire me, and uh, they also watch over the church's overall direction and vision. And the qualifications are in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in Titus chapter 1. And I'd encourage you to read those before you nominate people. So this, I'll send all this out in an email. So I know there's a lot of information I'm unloading on you right now. I'll send all of it out in an email. Or you can ask me questions about our process or any of our current elders. Their information is on our website. And you can ask about that as well. So uh, one of the things that was interesting to me, I read through the, the qualifications in Ti- Timothy and Titus This week, as I was preparing for that. And one of the things that was interesting is in Titus, one of the qualifications it lists is an elder is one who loves what is good. And I thought, here we are in a series about a church called good. And we've already learned in the first two weeks of this series that a, a very key component to creating a culture of goodness in the church is having good leaders. And so it's not surprising to me that Paul writes to Titus that an elder is one who loves what is good. And leadership is a, is a very, very important part of this process. And, of course, there, there are many other things that are important part of this process. So in this series, we're going through Matthew chapter 23, which is kind of a negative text of Jesus. I mean, he, it's the seven woes against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But we're trying to take that negative lesson from Jesus and apply that to a positive. So we're going to kind of flip things around uh, through the rest of this series and ask questions. Like today's question is, how can a church nurture Uh, empathy and grace how can a church nurture empathy and grace because today i think that's what jesus takes the 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 religious leaders to task for is they're failing to offer empathy and grace so we're gonna gonna start reading in in chapter 23 if you got a bible with you uh we're gonna start in chapter 23 verse 13 and I, i told you last week that jesus was just getting started like this text is um He's pointing a finger at the religious leaders, So he's telling his disciples, don't be like them because they are acting in bad faith. They're hypocritical. They're legalistic. Uh, they're arrogant. They do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on people's backs, and they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And everything they do is done for people to see. It's all a show. And um, Jesus is, is, does not mince words as he addresses this and so let's start reading in verse 13 we're going to read the first of the seven woes okay so this is that's what the subtitle here is the seven woes on the teachers of the law and the pharisees jesus speaking here woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces you yourselves do not enter nor will you let those enter who are trying to Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, teachers, uh, blind guides, excuse me. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by an oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits in it. Now, the last several verses are confusing because he's talking about something that we don't do anymore. So that's, that's a little bit confusing. It would have made sense in their religious background and culture. Uh, the rest of it's not confusing. As I said, Jesus does not mince words. Uh, three times he calls them blind guides. Uh, two times he calls them hypocrites. And he slips in one child of hell. Uh, I mean, this is, I mean, he is directly coming after the religious leaders and the teachers of the law. And, and as I try to summarize it, like I looked up the word woe. Like we hear that, you know, woe to woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law. What does that mean? What is he saying? The word woe means things that cause great sorrow or distress. So Jesus is saying this causes great sorrow and distress to these teachers of the law, these religious leaders. And the first three, as I tried to summarize them, I already told you my summary. My summary is... They lack empathy. This lack of empathy on the part of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was something that caused great sorrow and distress to uh, Jesus. And he described, you can hear it in the language as he goes through there, like, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. People who are trying to enter the kingdom of heaven, you will not let them. People who are trying to get closer to God, you will not let them get closer to God. You don't let people enter who are trying to. You work hard to win converts, but when you do make them a convert, you make them worse people than before they became a follower of yours. And you create some ticky-tack rules about oaths, about which ones are binding and which ones are, so you can hold people to different standards than you are willing to hold yourself to. And it's all characterized by a lack of empathy, and if it sounds familiar, like if you when you read through that text and you read that, that him going after him for for being hypocritical, or he goes after them for being blind guides, or he goes after them for shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, if that sounds familiar, it's because our human capacity for sinfulness hasn't changed in the last two thousand years. We've just modernized it; it just looks different. You know, we have the same kind of, I, I, you couldn't think of any examples this week, so I'm not going to dig deep into that part of the text, but we have the same kind of ticky-tack rules where we try to hold people to different standards and different, you know, we'll, we'll categorize sin and make some sin worse than other sin, and we'll hold some people to a certain standard and say, you're not welcome to be a part of church, and we'll hold other people and won't hold them to that standard. And so, like, we, we still just, we do the same stuff, we just modernized it. I have heard stories, and I know you have heard stories of churches or church leaders that have shut the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, that have kept people out that are trying to enter, or that have converted them to Christianity and made them worse than before they were Christians. They're worse people now that they're Christians. They're worse people now that they're a member of that church. The, the story it reminded me of, and there's, there's so many, so i got to be careful in which ones I tell. So I decided not to tell a personal one and to tell one I read about. But the story it reminded me of, as I read through this text this week, um, is uh, Perry Wallace. I read this book several years ago, which is a fantastic read, Inside Strong. Uh, the, I think it's the, the story of, or the collision of race, what was it, it was race and sports in uh, the SEC. And uh, Perry Wallace was the first African American to integrate the, the SEC, Southeastern Conference. He played basketball for Vanderbilt in the 60s. And early on in this story, as the author is telling this, he tells about uh, Perry first showing up at Vanderbilt's campus, and uh, Sunday rolls around. And so Perry grew up in a very religious family and decides that he needs to go to church somewhere, and so there was, as he was touring the campus one of the tour guides had pointed out a church just across the street, and Perry grew up Church of Christ, and so this fit perfectly for him. It was the University Church of Christ. It was just across uh, the campus from Vanderbilt, and it's no longer there anymore, so I'm not talking about a church that's that's still in existence, but Perry woke up that morning. He put on his coat and tie. uh, He went to the service. He slipped in, sat on the back pew, uh, noticed that he was the only African-American in the room, but People were pleasant and kind to him, and uh he attended the next Sunday and he attended the next sunday and few folks would come up and say hey you're you're the new basketball player at Vanderbilt, aren't you and he you know people were were kind on the fourth Sunday that Perry showed up. There was a group of men that met him in the foyer, and um they were the elders of the church and they took him to a side room and and said, "Now now perry um we're We're not prejudiced. I I, I think you'll understand. I think you'll understand this. Um, We're not prejudiced, but we've got an issue, and I think once you hear, you'll understand. um, There's just some people here that are uncomfortable with you being here, and um, some of them have threatened to withhold their contributions. Some of them have said that they will leave if you continue coming, and I think you understand that we can't have that happen, and so we're we're asking you to, to not come back to services, and I think you'll understand. Um, and Perry says in the in the interview, oh, they were very polite in their in their in shutting the door, but they said, uh, you know, you're going to have to leave. And they didn't let him enter the service that morning. They sent him back to his dorm room. And during the Sunday morning service, he sat in his coat and tie in his dorm room alone. Now, when I read that story, that was one of the stories that jumped out at me at that book for several reasons. Uh, one, Vanderbilt's just up the road. Uh, two. That's, that's where my dad went to school. He got his master's at Vanderbilt. My father-in-law was at school at Vanderbilt about the same time as Perry Wallace. But three, I grew up Church of Christ. And I've heard similar stories of a group of elders. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen in other churches. It's just I'm not Baptist, so I can't talk about what the Baptists did. And I wasn't, I wasn't Church of God, so I can't talk about the way they did it. But I mean, I, I've heard similar stories of the elders meeting with somebody and saying, hey, I, I think you'll understand we just, we just can't have you here. It's just, and and there's multiple reasons that that happened, not just because of race, but, you know, it's, it's happened um, over divorce or over a remarriage situation, or maybe there was a cohabitation, people, people, somebody was living together, and so they sat them down and said, oh, we're not sure we can have you still continuing here. Uh, Maybe somebody got pregnant uh, before they were supposed to. Uh, Maybe, Uh, there was some type of drinking problem. Uh, Maybe there was an addiction problem. There was something, something happened publicly that was bringing some type of shame or reproach upon the church. Maybe it was their sexual orientation. But for whatever reason, they were told, hey, and this is what the Pharisees did. They shut the door to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And I understand in some of those categories, I understand like I understand that churches have position statements and they've got doctrinal statements and that kind of thing, based on what they think the, te- the Bible teaches, and I understand. I, we have those too. but our position statement does not include shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It does not include kicking people out who are responding to God, who are trying to come to God and discover His will for those lives, their lives. And, and when I think about it, when I think about why churches do that, and I know it happens in other denominations, because I see you nodding your heads, and I know some of you have different backgrounds. So you're, you're confirming for me, like, yep, yeah, ha- trust me, it happens in all denominations. It happens all across religion. It was ha- it's been happening since the time of Jesus. When I think about why churches do that, I think it had a whole lot to do with a lack of empathy for someone else. They just haven't set in that person's experience. They haven't set in their shoes. They haven't experienced what they're experiencing, and so there's no empathy. So we tend to be harshest on the sins that we don't struggle with. If we don't struggle with something, then we tend to be really harsh on that, or we we tend to be really uh, critical or judgmental about that. So we say, I don't struggle with that, so I don't have any grace for people who do. This is not a weakness of mine, so I'm going to be really hard on those who it is. Or the worst one was, I'm just not comfortable with those people. And so what we do is we retreat. It, it, it church has responded in two ways. One way is the church says, you can't come here anymore so that we can protect, so that we can keep our church looking, thinking, and acting all the same. We don't want anybody that challenges our way of thinking. Or the other people just leave and say, I'm going to go somewhere where the people look like and think like and act like, just like me. And it, and it comes from a lack of empathy. All right? With, and here's why it's so important. Without empathy... We can't show compassion. And without compassion, we can't show grace. And without grace, we can't possibly be a church called good. This is why it's so important. I mean, like, empathy is the birthplace of grace. So this church says, we're a grace-oriented church. We're a grace-oriented church. We're a gr- Where does that come from? Well, it comes from empathy. And it starts with empathizing with someone else's situation, someone else's life, someone else's experience, possibly someone else's struggle. Whatever it is, it starts with empathizing, trying to put yourself in their shoes. Here's the—can you throw that quote up for me real quick, Noah. Um, Scott McKnight and Laura basically Your Empathy is the ability to feel what someone else feels To exit our own feelings and enter the experience of others Just look at that quote The ability to feel what someone else feels So when we're able to feel what someone else feels That's why it's the birthplace of compassion When we feel what someone else feels Then we have compassion for them And we have some understanding of where they're coming from And so therefore we can extend grace to them in that time and, and we can respond in a different way than the world around us responds. We don't, we don't. The only way that you can, can shut the door in somebody's face is because you fail to have any empathy for them and their situation. Uh, I read, a. Uh, well, I didn't read. I listened to another podcast. I'm not even going to tell you the name of it because I've given you so many, you know, so many stuff to listen to that I'm not going to give you more resources. it just, It's just get worse. But somebody had sent me this podcast and I, I was listening to it and it was about a Christian university and um, there was a, it was a story of a, of a girl who got pregnant and that was against the, the university's policy. Uh, and so she was trying to hide the pregnancy until she could get through the, the first year because she was going to get kicked out of the, the dorm if they found out. And so uh, eventually, to a prayer leader, she confessed that, that she was pregnant. And the prayer leader betrayed her confidence and took it on up the line to another person in the university. Anyway, they got the adults involved. And so they said, well, you need to go to this place. It was like some type of counselor or something that was representing the university. and And sat down with her and basically gave her an ultimatum. You either gotta get married in the next 24 hours or you gotta get out of the dorm. And what she said, this is the part that was heartbreaking in the story. What she said was, this is a, this is a university that's staunchly pro-life. She said, it would have been easier for me to get an abortion than to, con, than to, to share that I was pregnant. Because what she found, once, she, once she shared it, she was met with no empathy. And no empathy means no compassion, and no compassion means no grace. And they, were, they cared more about protecting the reputation of the institution, about protecting the reputation of, you know, their policies and all to say, this, we got to protect ourselves here. So they cared more about protecting their reputation than they did. And as I listened to the story in the podcast, I'm thinking this person that was trying to minister to this young lady had no empathy for her situation. That's the only reason she could respond the way she did. She had no empathy whatsoever. She could not feel what she was feeling. And she was scared, and, and she, was, she was hurt, and she was confused, and, but she could not feel what she was doing. She could not sit in her experience. And because she could not sit in her experience, she could offer her no mercy and no compassion. It it works in the positive sense as well. I mean, if you think about the Waverly Flood, what happened with the Waverly Flood? Why did we raise so much money for the Waverly Flood? You don't know anybody in Waverly. You you felt what they felt. You could watch those news stories and you felt what they felt and you could imagine what it would be like to lose your home. You could imagine what it would be like to lose uh your animals imagine what it'd be like to lose loved ones i mean you could imagine that and that produces because when empathy is engaged it it leads to compassion it leads to grace and then that leads to action on our part to alleviate that suffering i'll show you two passages real quick uh hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 because i I don't want this just to be like oh that's all that's all interesting that's your opinion russ this is scripture Look at this, the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Jesus was able to empathize with our weakness because he entered our story. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then, now he says, because Jesus has empathy, because Jesus can empathize with us, let us then do what? Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The same thing should be said of the church. People should be able to say the church is a place that has, is, is able to empathize with people because it is full of people that have been through the same life experiences and have been through the same stuff and we can empathize with you. Therefore, you can approach a church with confidence that you will receive mercy and find grace. Now, sadly, we're going to close with a song. They're coming back up to get ready. But, but sadly, many churches, we, we haven't been able to say that people were confident that at a church you would receive mercy and find grace. But that's what we're called to. Here's the other one. If you look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, this is speaking about Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because Jesus was able to empathize, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into his harvest field." I've always read that last line as evangelism. But look what he's calling us to. He's calling us to be be takers of grace. To take grace out into a world that is harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. To a world that is hurting. That's where where he says there's not many workers. There's not many workers to take grace out into a world where grace is in short supply. If you want to know why we are so outraged right now, if you just... why everybody's emotions are running out, why we're fighting with one another, why people are outraged over vaccines or masks or race or politics or kneeling or taxes or abortion law or whatever. You, if you want to know why we're so outraged with one another is because there is an extreme shortage of empathy in our culture. There is an extreme shortage of being able to experience what somebody else has experienced and to feel their experience. So rather than dialoguing with an intent to understand, we argue with an intent to condemn. We just don't have empathy for them in their situation. And if, and if that's going to change, it changes with the people of God. We, this is, I'm trying to apply this in my life. I'm trying to think when, so, when somebody is criticizing something or somebody's got a viewpoint that I disagree with or somebody says something or somebody's you know, acting out in some way rather than me condemning them and writing them out of my life or I'm going to go to another church or I'm going to unfriend you or whatever, the first question I'm trying to ask is, Man, what's going on in their life? Must be something going on. They got to be hurting somehow. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt to extend, to, to assume the best about them. And I ask the same thing for me. Like when, when you hear me do stuff or you see me do stuff, rather than immediately judging and condemning and saying, well, they're wrong, they're wrong, you say, man, what's going on? Because I'm telling you, we're, all of us right now are carrying a heavy, heavy burden. And, and the, the teachers, healthcare workers, pastors, uh, business owners, um, people working in businesses, moms, dads, I mean, we're carrying a lot of stress right now, a lot of stress. And the thing that our world needs more than anything is just for us to have empathy for the for empathy for one another let's stop fighting with one another and have empathy for one another because that's what our savior called us to do we need to have so much love for our fellow man that people might characterize it as reckless because that's that's the amount of love that Jesus had for us Jesus had so much love for us that people characterized it as reckless and that's the thing that makes Jesus so attractive and if Jesus is attractive and the church is not We need to become more like Jesus. Let's stand together and sing this song.